I'm thankful this morning to join uh, with the elders in opening up another psalm to you in our Summer Psalms for Spiritual Revival series. So thanks so much to Pete. Thank you, thank you Matthew, for standing in these last uh, couple of weeks. I, I'm excited to hear from Ben Reese this coming Sunday. And what we're doing is we're choosing psalms that focus on a particular spiritual discipline or a particular work of the church that move us to spiritual renewal related to that work with, of course, because it's in the scriptures, but especially the Psalms, a, a grounding of grace, a grounding of gospel. Um, so if you haven't already, turn with me to Psalm 14. This is a Psalm that I, um, I preached at very, in various contexts and actually for the past four and a half years, I've been like waiting for an opportunity to preach Psalm 14. So when the Psalm series came on the, the docket for this summer, um, I was excited and thankful for this chance. So let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you that we as your gathered church can gather together in this grace of coming and singing the Psalms, singing hymns and spiritual songs. Lord, that we can come and listen and hear your word proclaimed, and we can do that, God, uh, and hear truth. Lord, the reason we're able to hear truth, we know, is because of the grace that you've shown us in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you'd make your mercies known to us, that you'd remind us of this reality, that we can't approach this text with an expectation that we'll have understanding apart from your spirit at work in us, a spirit we ask that you would be active in our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we find ourselves at sort of the beginning of August, right? This is a historically pivotal moment for the Deck family, all right? So to, to back up and tell a little bit of our stories, August 1st, 2006, Amy and I, along with our dog, Remington, packed into two cars an 89 Honda Civic and a 98 Pontiac Sunfire and drove from Chicago to Minneapolis to begin what would become, on a 100 degree day, by the way, hottest day of the year, to begin what would become a decade of youth ministry at New Hope Church. And then 10 years later, to the day, August 1st, 2016, despite the fact that I'd already begun some of the work in previous months on this, I officially started my role as a church planter sent from New Hope with a team of people with their eyes fixed on evangelistic mission. And I remember it really was, it was August when uh, we did an informational meeting. People came, you know, we met uh, some of you for the first time at this uh, informational meeting and then that continued to, to grow. And that concept of our mission began to clarify and we eventually landed on the following big V vision statement for our new church meaningfully and relationally engaging even the most skeptical people with the good news of Jesus. That's what we set out to do from the outset of this church. Now, I think there are a lot of people at, New Hope, at Gospel Life, uh, New Hope who sent us Gospel Life here, who, as we started out, had unique reasons for being passionate about this vision. And I think that's still the case in our midst, four years later, by God's grace, um, at at Gospel Life Church, that there are those among us who are really excited and passionate about engaging even the most skeptical people with the good news of Jesus. And I think we all come with unique 
reasons for that excitement. To, to give you some of my background, as a pastor, in terms of the ministry contexts that were always the most appealing to me, I've always been drawn to spiritual neediness, like spiritual neediness. That is to say, I've been drawn to ministries in which there were just more opportunities to have conversations with people who didn't believe in Christ, or who, who, who didn't know what they believed, or who were skeptical of the claims of Christianity, but they were open to having conversations about it. They were interested in pursuing more knowledge related to it. And so when we began partnering with ministries overseas, you know, Amy and I took multiple trips. Uh, I took trips at, at a younger age. Amy took trips at a younger age, and both of us took a trip together. And so we were kind of looking at international partnerships. The ministry that grabbed my heart and my passion the most as a 21-year-old was in the Czech Republic, which is considered to be the most atheistic country in the world. And yet here I would go, and there'd be all of these opportunities for spiritual conversations with non-believing people, and that's what really gripped my heart. And as I was being led then, uh, 10 years after uh, being in youth ministry at New Hope, into a lead pastor position, a lead pastor role, as I began exploring various opportunities for having a lead pastor role in our denomination, the pastoral role that grabbed my heart and passion the most very early on, was church planting because it's the most evangelistic methodology under heaven. It presents the best opportunity to have the most conversations with non-believing people. And here at Gospel Life Church, figuring out then how we can do that, how we can relationally come alongside of those who are maybe skeptical of the claims of Christianity, who feel far from God maybe, who don't know what they believe about God, while at the same time meaningfully challenging the way they think about the world around them has been one of the founding components of vision for our church. And I'm really excited to head into our fall ministry together here as a church, thinking about what that looks like in this context more and more. And, and yet, here's the reality. We find ourselves in what I think is definitely the most challenging time for evangelism in the history of our context, okay? In the history of our country, in the history of really the vast majority of places that you could plant a church in our country, in the West, it is by far the most challenging time for evangelism. And it's challenging for a variety of reasons, but I think at least two of them are the largest and can also be helped by reflecting on Psalm 14 together. Okay, I think this passage has a particular relevance to the situation in which we find ourselves. But maybe not the reason you think. You know, it's like we start a sermon on, on uh, talking with our non-believing friends and it begins, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Might be tempted to read that and think, is this passage one of these passages where a Christian can, can take it and use it to point the finger outward at atheistic culture, at s- skeptical cultures, but that's not the primary purpose of this text. In fact, I'd argue that this passage, which I actually so commonly hear used by Christians as a specific condemnation of atheistic culture or a specific condemnation of secular non-believing culture, isn't actually specifically about that at all. This passage isn't primarily meant to point a finger outward. It's meant to cause your finger to point a different Direction, And I think uh, the outward pointing finger along with the hostility from within much of Christendom in the West right now towards 
those who embrace secular culture, is one of the biggest challenges toward evangelism in the West. If I were to pinpoint two major challenges toward evangelism right now, one of them is hostility from within much of the Western church toward those who embrace secular culture. Thinking about, actively thinking about as a church, how to not be a stumbling block to the gospel by making my rights more important than giving a gospel hearing is becoming increasingly rare. Making the gospel's proclamation more important than a Christian's rights is increasingly rare. And it's almost as though we've, we've done the Thomas Jefferson thing of taking out a penknife and removing certain sections of scripture and saying, well, these are more optional sections as it relates to the Christian's uh, responsibility to lay down their rights when they might become stumbling blocks to the gospel so the non-believers can hear and then be confronted with the stumbling block, Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to spend some time asking, where is the finger actually pointed in Psalm 14? And where is it not? And what are the implications of that? At the very same time, you know, this passage carries missional significance. See, it's not enough to say, look, uh, Jeremy's right, the finger in Psalm 14 doesn't point outward. So everyone must be okay, and, you know, grace covers just everything. There's, there's nothing that needs to be called out in culture. There's nothing evil or wicked in culture that stands out that the church needs to stand against. You know, while the, hist while the hostility from within one part of Christendom towards secular culture is one of the biggest challenges to evangelism, the other biggest problem, and it's a growing problem, is the blind acceptance of secular culture. So that, um, you know, we'll be liked. A lot of Christians who didn't get the chance to sit at the cool kids' table see this is their opportunity we don't challenge anything anymore. We're more afraid of what people think of us than truth oftentimes, or else we just starting to drift into apathy. Well, so, since Psalm 14, it doesn't seem to be the, the pointed outward fing finger, the condemnation that Jeremy's talking about. Why does it matter? And yet, here in Psalm 14... We find two, here's the outline, we see two perspectives in the text. And each of these perspectives gives us a very different resulting heart posture as it relates to how to engage the world around us. Two perspectives and a heart posture. So that when we're done, we're not going to find a heart posture, a text that enables a heart posture of pointing a finger outward with self-righteousness, asserting that I'm better than the world around me. And we're also not going to find a passage that gives us some license to increasingly capitulate to culture, you know, wherever uh, it might get us in some trouble to say what's true in the Bible. Okay, neither one of those is what we'll find. Instead, we'll find the greatest resource for boldness in declaring truth of the gospel of the world around us with a humility and love that's rooted in what Christ has done. So let's Look first at verse 1 for our first perspective. Two perspectives and a posture, a resulting posture. First perspective, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. All right, two perspectives in Psalm 14. We start with the perspective of the fool, but it's important to understand what's meant by this author of this psalm when he uses the word fool. What, is, 
What does fool even mean? It's common in Hebrew poetry and wisdom literature. I encourage you to do a deep dive study on foolishness in wisdom literature, foolishness in poetic literature in in the Old Testament. Derek Kidner's uh, short commentary on Psalms is a really good resource for that. But here in in the Psalms, what we, we find is that the fool is not who we often think he is. The fool in this context isn't ignorant, not in the way you and I would say, I mean, he is, but not in the way that you and I talk about that. The fool in this context isn't really an atheist, not in the way you and I think about that word. The fool is just a synonym. It's a synonym for wicked. That's how it's used throughout the Old Testament. It's a synonym for wicked, and it's a synonym that actually tells us why the fool is wicked. It reflects on this greater wisdom tradition that we see throughout the Old Testament where the fool is aggressively and intentionally self-reliant. That's essentially what we're looking at here. He's aggressively self-reliant by really broadcasting and boasting to the world around him about his independence from God, about the reality is he doesn't really need God. He honestly believes that he has no need of God, and if he does... It's a mutual kind of need. I scratch his back while he scratches mine. God must need him just as much. And as a result, I would say that the best definition from foolishness described in the scripture would be something along the lines of this. And what I've done is taken multiple commentaries in Psalms and um, where one is lacking kind of added to the other. So this is kind of a conglomeration. But the willful, self-reliant disregard for the ways of God. That's foolishness throughout the Old Testament. The willful, self-reliant disregard for the ways of God. The fool is purposefully, willfully, purposefully in, in, in a posture that's rooted in a reliance on self rather than reliance on God, disregarding his ways, disregarding his word, posturing his own, putting his own wisdom ahead of the wisdom of the Lord. It's Genesis 3, right? But one of the reasons that I can say that this passage isn't really about uh, unbelieving secular skepticism or atheism is because the denial of God isn't necessarily an absolute denial of his existence. This is something that we all need to realize. There are many who attend even evangelical churches and they weakly claim that they believe in the existence of God, and yet, week to week, day to day, they function practically in their lives as an atheist. Practical atheism is a real problem from within the life of the church. You know, we've talked before about the work of, um, I think, the important work. We used to talk about it like, hey, this is the trajectory things are headed in. I think now we're finally at a point where we're talking about this being something that we've come through. But uh, sociologist Christian Smith has talked a lot about how the overriding Christian worldview of the last, really we could say the last three decades of the church has been that God exists, he created the world, he wants me to be generally good, you know, he wants me to feel good about myself, but otherwise he's not really involved in the everyday affairs of my life, right? Like, more or less, there's really nothing that I could do. I mean, like, he kind of created the world, he wound it up, he set it off, he... He, he wants people to be generally good and feel good about themselves. And that's 
this overriding Christian worldview. He's disconnected. I don't really need him. I'm not really reliant upon him for anything. That's the corrupt perspective of the fool. But before we close our Bibles and rush off to condemn the fool and say, like, what a foolish gospel, what a foolish overriding worldview of Christianity and all of those fools who believe it, which I think is a real temptation whenever Christians are handling texts like this, verses like this. We need to keep reading, you know, and see not just this corrupt perspective of the fool, but also see this second perspective in the text, the righteous and just perspective of the Lord. All right, so what's the Lord's perspective? Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, there they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. All right, there's a lot going on here in the perspective of the Lord. But it begins with God, the creator, looking down on his creation. He sees his creation, his creatures. And so we see this connection between Psalm 14 and the book that we just spent the last year and a half in, Genesis. Right, The God who saw the fall of man in the garden, who saw creation, who created the world right, out of nothing. He saw the fall of man in the garden which resulted in the corruption of man before the flood, the rebellion of man after the flood, continued rebellion, the God who saw and heard the evil outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah, the God who witnessed the failures of Israel and their leaders and prophets and kings over and over and over again throughout redemptive history looks down upon mankind to see if there are any who can make the claim of not being foolish. Are there any among us who can say that? And what does he declare? All have turned aside. It's almost a summary of what we just spent a year and a half teaching. All have turned aside. Surely Adam will be righteous, right? Oh, no. Surely Noah, he's, he's, he's going to completely lead us out of this. He won't fail, right? Oh, no. Surely Isaac and Jacob won't fail. Right? And yet it's clear throughout redemptive history they all demonstrate hearts that apart from the grace of God would be apostate. They can't bear to carry even a portion of the promise that God gave to his people. They've together become corrupt. Mankind in totality. Everyone. All of mankind is under the curse of sin because there's no one who does good. No, not one. See, this is, this is centrally why this verse doesn't lend itself as a tool for outward pointing fingers and self-righteousness that says, the rest of this world is so stupid. They're all just so dumb. Look at all the fools. It doesn't lend itself to that. Or if we do that, it's quite ironic because all we're doing is ending up showing how true the passage is about us. Right? We show that we don't, uh, we don't do well with reading comprehension. All we have to do is read the next two verses after verse 1 to see that this is not the case, because this passage points its finger at all of us and tells us that we're all fools. It's talking about me. It's talking about Jeremy. And if you have a hard time believing me, we're going to see some pretty indisputable, indisputable evidence, right? That if you're a Christian, you know, this isn't just Jeremy's interpretation. It also happens to be the interpretation of an apostle, so we'll get there. But what does this mean for me, that I'm a fool? Judgment. 
Verse 5, there they are in great terror. Great terror. This isn't like some, you know, because I think, I think this concept of this kind of judgment of God is one of those things that we kind of want to bend back with surrounding culture and say, is God really going to judge anyone? Look at the words of the psalmist, you guys. Those who reject God, those who willfully, who purposefully and self-reliantly disregard the ways of God should be in great terror. A righteous and just God must visit righteous judgment upon the fool. He must visit righteous judgment upon the wicked. He must pour out his wrath. And that's where the terror comes from, as we see in Psalm 14. But even here, you know, we see a thread of hope. And that hope might be a little bit confusing to us initially. Because, you know, he says, he starts this section by saying uh, that everyone, no one is righteous. No one does good. Not even one. And then he speaks of his people in verse 4. It's like, wait, what? Your people. Then he speaks of the generation of the righteous in verse 5. And he speaks of him being a refuge to his people. He calls them the poor in verse 6. But wait, I thought there was no one who was righteous. So how can there be a generation of the righteous? How can anyone claim to be God's people if they've all disregarded him? Who are the poor that the psalmist describes in verse 6 that God says, I am your refuge? Well, I think Jesus speaks to this question directly, actually. In Luke 6, Jesus begins addressing his disciples. And his first words literally says, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. Sorry. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, as we preached there a few years ago, he speaks that question directly again. Jesus begins addressing the crowds. His first words to them. Actually, it says, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why does Jesus seem to be beginning as an itinerant preacher his sermons in this way? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Many have concluded that Luke and Matthew have preserved the teaching of this Jesus of history that has been embellished over the years, who is actually more chiefly concerned with the materially poor than he was about this idea of sin in the world. And of course, listen, Jesus is concerned with the materially poor. It's crucial for Jesus' followers to be concerned with the materially poor, to give and to love in that way. But I would say that this is not Jesus' chief concern. It's not his chief concern in these passages. It's not the chief concern of our passage in Psalm 14 this morning either. So who are the poor? Well, throughout the Old Testament, we come to see that this term poor, rather than having material implications, actually has deeply spiritual and religious implications. Usually it's it's talking about those who are in such a place of social distress that they realize they can only have confidence in God. And this is what Jesus means, by the way, when he says that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Well, because a rich man's never, you know, the, the, the chances of a rich man being re- completely reliant on God are very small, right, is what Jesus is saying. It's a very, very small chance that somebody who every single day is able to just go about life without God and just get what they need is ever going to be dependent, and yet the poor are in this social distress. But what does the social distress cause? Confidence only in God. Throughout the Psalms, it's it's that. It's this like reliance upon God as opposed to reliance upon self. 
That's the author's thrust. That's what the author's after when he uses this term poor. And somehow we find that this word poor actually becomes the equivalence of righteous in many different psalms, many different sections in the Old Testament, and we certainly see that here in Psalm 14 as we read the text. There they are in great terror, for for God is with the generation of the righteous, you who would shame the plans of the poor. Poor and righteous being used interchangeably. But how is it that the poor are righteous? Well, if we remember D.A. Carson's words in his own commentary on Matthew when we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, something I quote often, but I think it's important for us, to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence upon him. Now, this is really interesting because what we've just seen is the exact opposite of the fool who's entirely self-reliant, you know? This idea of the poor who just are completely and utterly reliant, dependent, spiritually bankrupt, confessing unworthiness, that's totally different from the fool who's entirely self-reliant and so... The perspective of the Lord is to look upon all humanity and say, they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. As a holy and just God, there's no one who meets his standard of righteousness. And yet we also see that in his mercy and grace, despite the fact that we haven't reached the standard of righteousness, he loves us enough that he's able to call his people righteous. Because it's as we examine, like these, these two perspectives lead to a different posture. A posture of righteousness. As we examine the perspective of the fool. And then as we look at the perspective of the Lord and we realize that he's talking about me. He's talking about you. That I can't do what he requires. It brings me to the posture of the righteous. Which is to become poor. Completely bankrupt as it relates to my ability to please a holy God. And that's what brings us to verse 7. Oh, that this, this verse 7 is the way that Psalm 14 has to end, you guys. It has to end this way. For those who really believe what the posture of the fool and the posture of the Lord says, this is our only thing that we can do. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. With great faith and hope, the posture of the righteous is just this complete and desperate cry of dependence for God to deliver them. It's complete dependence upon God to bring salvation for his people. Carson continues in his commentary. He says, The kingdom of heaven is not given on the basis of race, earned merits, the military zeal and prowess of zealots, or the wealth of a Zacchaeus. It's given to the poor, the despised publicans, the prostitutes, those who are so poor that they know they can offer nothing to the Lord and they do not try. They cry for mercy and so they alone are heard. They're not alone heard because they're because of how much or little they have. They're alone heard because they're the ones who cry for mercy, who realize they can't do it, who throw themselves on the mercies of Christ and they know they can offer nothing and do not try. So they cry out. That's precisely what we see here in Psalm 14. A realization of what we can't offer, and a crying out, oh, that salvation for Israel would come. Would come out of Zion. But has salvation come to God's people? Has salvation come out of Zion? Has the Lord restored the fortunes of his people? Has this cry been answered? The the words of the psalm are essentially present 
word for word in two other places in the scriptures. One is Psalm 53, which is essentially the same psalm repeated. Okay, so if you go to Psalm 3, you'll see the, the position of the fool, the position of the Lord, and the, the resulting posture, this cry of salvation in Psalm 53. But then in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, we see it laid out for us again with much of the exact same wording that Paul is actually quoting. He says, as it is written, and he goes back to Psalm 14. But we see it starting really in chapter 2, where Paul says this. He says, he, God, will render each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And now, now we see the position of the fool. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So there's this fool that enters the picture in Romans 2. Right? And we might be tempted to point the finger outward and say, okay, okay, good. Listen, this is good for me. God will render to each one according to his works. Great, I can do that. I can meet God's standard. You know, I'll do what verse 7 says here. I'll be patient. I'll buy patience and well-doing, seek for glory and immortality, and I'll be rendered eternal life. You know, it's actually those people, those people, the fools, the self-seeking and unrighteous, those are the problem, not me. And then we get to chapter 3 and we realize that this whole thing, like we've been punked. This whole thing was a setup from Paul. Starting in verse 10, we see some familiar language. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Oh, you think you're going to seek for God? No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. See, Paul was setting you up in chapter 2. You might have thought that chapter 2 gave you the justification to point your finger outward. But chapter 3 shows you that it's actually pointing inward. It's about me. It's about us. Paul's interpretation of Psalm 14 is that lest you think you can actually, by your own works, have eternal life rendered to you, lest you think you weren't the fool or aren't the fool, Actually, you should know that none is righteous. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. No, not one, he says. Genesis 3 left you just as foolish as everyone else. Do you know that? The sin that corrupted mankind also corrupted you. You have demonstrated prior to Christ. You have demonstrated the willful, self-reliant disregard for the ways of God. Not just some other person out there. This is part of your story. Okay, but Paul, we, we might say, where, where does the posture of our righteousness come into play, right? Because what about the cries from the spiritually bankrupt? The ones who recognize their inability to rescue themselves in Psalm 14. The ones who cry out for salvation. Have they been answered? Paul says, yes, they have. Lest you now despair in realizing that none is righteous, and so you can never, on your own merits or work, be rendered eternal life. You should know that, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from works. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Oh, that salvation for Israel might come out of Zion. Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, I'm not made right by works. I'm not made right by what I do because I can't do it. I can't. It's impossible. What makes me right? Where do we find the righteousness of God? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believes. And what this means, 
is that all of us must come to a place in our lives. Here's the, the, where the rubber meets the road for us. Every single one of us in this room must come to a place in our lives where we recognize that we cannot save ourselves. And that's the biggest lie that culture wants to, to sell you. And let me tell you, not only is it the biggest lie that culture wants to sell you, but no side of the political or cultural aisle is immune from that lie. Everyone is trying to sell this. Everyone is trying to sell a self-righteousness, a work on self. Rescue yourself. Improve yourself so that you can self-righteously wag your figure at the other side and say, I'm so much better than you, you know, snowflake sheep. I'm so, so much better than you, deplorable, ignorant. And, and this is what, what all sides are selling. Nobody's immune to this. And yet we must see that with, we must come to the place of seeing my inability to do this, my inability to reach a holy God. We must see that without God, like what's the answer to this fighting? What's the answer to this? It's seeing that without God, we're bankrupt. All of us are in the same boat. Seeing that without that posture, as, as Psalm 14 tells us, we're all in great terror. We're just a bunch of fools fighting. Claiming that the fools on the other side are less fools than us, and it's not true. We're in great terror, for we're deserving of the wrath of a perfectly just God. But because God is gracious, because he's merciful, because he made us in his image, and he desires for us to know him, he did what we could not do. He lived that perfect life. He was the only one. Like, what's Romans 2, 6 through 8 about? When he says, each will be rendered according to his works for those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and immortality. Well, who's that? Jesus. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He's the only one who was able to do that. God rendered him eternal life on the basis of his merit, but then he died the death. Though he deserved that, he died the death that we deserved to die. That we should have died. And he hung there on the cross instead of me and instead of you. And he rose to new life so that if we come to him with empty hands, knowing that we have nothing to offer, we trust entirely on what he's done for us and not on ourselves, then we have newness of life in him. He calls us his children. He calls us the generation of the righteous. He, he says that he's our refuge because we've, we've hidden under him. We've recognized that we have nothing. And so we, we've hidden under him and he is faithful to be our refuge. We can be reconciled with God. This is, what, this is what Psalm 14 is about, you know. Oh, that salvation might come out of Zion. It's about the cross. Zion in the Old Testament is often an allusion to the temple. Or the hill upon which the temple stood. It was, a, it was the temple where God said to his people, Though you are not righteous, though you are foolish, though you have willfully disregarded me, self-reliantly disregarded my ways, I'll meet you over the sacrifice. I'll commune with you over the sacrifice. I'll be with you over the sacrifice at the temple. The sacrifice became the propitiation for God's people, the means by which God might find favor with us and our sin might be atoned and forgiven. That happened in the temple temporarily because the wrath of God fell upon that sacrifice. So God could meet with his people over the sacrifice, but that's how God meets us now, by means of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that we might have new life in him. Oh, that salvation might come out of Zion, and it did. What does this have to do with the mission of the church? Well, that same posture of the righteous that leads us to come to him with empty hands, like that we really do all need to believe so that we understand, like, no, 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 this isn't something that we just give some kind of, like, some kind of uh, assent to intellectually, some kind of intellectual assent. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Nobody's, we're all the same. But then go on living life as though we're better than everyone. No, 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 actually believing it. Actually coming to him with empty hands. Actually coming to him with nothing. And relying and trusting entirely on the work of Christ. That also creates in us a missionary posture. It drives us with great desire to see the work that Christ did in me, who was a fool apart from Christ, and who's now been accepted by God as his child through Christ. See, when I read, the fool says in his heart there is no God, it's not justification for me to say, look at that fool. It is right, though, to respond by saying, the Lord saved me when I was yet a fool. The Lord has made a way to rescue fools like me. Praise the Lord. I should be able to say that on a daily basis. Because I see my foolishness on a daily basis. This posture of hope in Christ drives us to say, I want to see this happen in the lives of everyone in my community. If the Lord did this to me, I want to see him do this to those whom I love, to the people around me. This is the posture that drives us to love our non-believing neighbor instead of thinking we're above our non-believing neighbor. It drives us to take risks knowing that it's not us who creates an openness to the gospel, but the Spirit of God who works in us. This is also the posture that drives us to fearlessness when faced with contempt of surrounding culture. Because listen, we don't need acceptance from surrounding culture when we have the love of Christ. Gospel Life Church, you don't need the acceptance of surrounding culture. You don't need surrounding culture to think of you a certain way to look at you a certain way. You have the love of Christ. When we come to truly know and love God through Christ, we begin to greatly desire for others to know him too. And I'll say that, man, and this is something that I'm on a journey with you in, but as we approach texts like Psalm 14, if we fall into either ditch, it calls us to repentance. If we are those who angrily approach surrounding culture with the kind of disdain that puts a stumbling block between them and the gospel, Psalm 14 calls you to repentance and to read further, please. And yet, if we are those who consistently capitulate and kind of throw up our arms and say, why does any of this matter? And I don't really want to... Psalm 14 calls you to repentance because there is great terror that he saves us from. And so when we proclaim the gospel at the table, we're reminding ourselves of this. We're reminding ourselves. We're reminding ourselves of the gospel that actually is the source that enables this kind of life. We remind ourselves of our former position, that of the fool. We remind ourselves that God's position is to judge the fool. But instead of that his judgment fell upon Christ, who is not a fool. The only one who wasn't, who was perfect. It's the opposite of the fool. Where his body was broken and his blood was shed, so that by his mercies I can have life in him. And when we remind ourselves of this, that this is truly our story, it sends us out with the desire for others to be given the same grace that we've received. You know, And we're going to be entering into the fall with opportunities here at Gospel Life Church for us to like demonstrate this overflowing reality of our hearts. Like, let's be thinking about our non-believing friends and neighbors and co-workers and be thinking, if the Lord loved a fool like me, I want to make sure that my friends can have the same redemption that I was given.
And so let's go to the table now. This is a meal that we have together, the Lord's table, that is for believers. If you're here and you're a non-believer, we ask that you, that you um, observe. You know, we want you to participate through observation. But because this is a proclamation of our belief in the gospel, this is a meal for those who believe in which we proclaim this gospel to one another and by its grace are motivated.